for Radio Catskill. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk report highlights this week's blue moon. We'll meet Hunter O'Connor, apprentice at Two Creek Regenerative Farm in Northeast Pennsylvania. And Stephanie Phillips shares her audio recording of forest biologist Dr. Michael Kudish, who presented a lecture on bogs in the Catskills. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. In the state of Louisiana, wildfires have scorched several thousand acres fed by excessive heat, extreme drought, and high winds. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards told reporters, When the wind picks up, to have the fires burning in the crowns of trees rather than on the ground and low where they can be easily, more easily uh, contained it makes for a very difficult and dangerous Situation. Louisiana is contending with several fires across the state all at the same time. Ukrainian officials say Russian shells have struck a cafe in a key frontline area, killing two civilians, wounding a third. The attack targeted a suburb of the city of Kupiansk. UK military intelligence say it appears that Moscow may try to retake the area, which was recaptured by Kiev last year. Russia says it thwarted another Ukrainian drone attack on Moscow. The Russian claim comes as the capital has increasingly become a target for drones. NPR's Charles Maines has more from Moscow. Moscow Mayor Sergei Sabyanin said the drone was destroyed by Russian air defenses in the western outskirts of the city, some 30 miles from the Kremlin early Saturday. No injuries or damage were reported, even as Sabyanin said emergency crews were on the scene. City authorities also halted air traffic in the city's three main airports for several hours. Although drone strikes and artillery fire have been common along the Russian-Ukrainian border throughout the war, a spate of drone attacks on the capital beginning in May have increasingly tested the city's air defenses. Ukraine has neither confirmed nor denied involvement, but Kiev has said it welcomes incidents that bring the war home to Russians, otherwise ignoring the conflict next door. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Civil rights leaders and indeed the nation take stock of the last six decades in American history as thousands are expected to turn out today for the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. NPR's Alana Weiss reports on plans to mark the remembrance of the 1963 march that led to historic changes even as some crosswinds remain troubling. Sixty years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his iconic I Have a Dream speech from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Civil rights leaders and King's family will reconvene in Washington to commemorate that historic event. I have a dream. Since those words were delivered at the height of the civil rights movement, America has gone through many changes. Just a year later, Congress would pass the Civil Rights Act, and eventually other rights such as gay marriage and abortion access would follow. These days, the nation faces an uptick in white nationalism and a rollback of some hard-fought civil protections. Today's event will highlight the contrast between what has changed in 60 years and what civil rights activists still hope to achieve. This is NPR News in Washington. 
This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Apprentice Hunter O'Connor says hello from Two Creek Regenerative Farm in Northeast Pennsylvania. Thanks to Stephanie Phillips, now you'll know about forest biologist Dr. Michael Kudish and his lecture on bogs in the Catskills. But first, here's Keith Hubbard with Star Talk. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. The second full moon of August will occur on Wednesday. That makes this full moon a blue moon. While the moon will not turn blue, it will still be a special event. Most of the time, there is only one full moon each month. This is because the cycle of the moon's phases is 29 and a half days, which is just shy of one calendar month. Our calendar is based off Earth's motion around the sun and not the phases of the moon, so the two do not exactly match up. Blue moons occur every 2.7 years, and the next blue moon will occur in May 2026. The exception to this rule is if a blue moon occurs in January. If a blue moon occurs in January, then February will not have a full moon at all, and March will also have a blue moon. The term, once in a blue moon, refers to something that happens infrequently. Though the phrase sounds like a bit of old folklore, the phrase is fairly modern. In the early 1900s, the phrase was used to refer to a different full moon phenomena. Originally, the phrase, once in a blue moon, described the occurrence of four full moons in a given season, instead of the typical three. In the 1940s, the phrase was misinterpreted as the meaning we know today. This misinterpretation was repeated often enough so that the new definition of a blue moon became the standard. Enjoy the rare occurrence of an August blue moon on Wednesday. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Here is Hunter O'Connor. I spoke with him earlier this year at Two Creek Farm, a 100-acre regenerative farm in northeast Pennsylvania. Hey, everybody. My name is Hunter O'Connor. I take the title as apprentice here on the farm. My purpose is to, you know, learn and experience what it's like to be on a farm. I came here to experience what it's like to work on a farm to to work with livestock and the garden and i think the long-term goal is so that i can you know kind of add my skills that i've learned in the past to the farming industry and then doing that in a regenerative way that uh, is also improving the environment as well and that's part of the journey as well i came recently from florida Florida was very hot and it's very flat there. So coming here was quite the drastic change in climate. We don't have a lot of livestock down there in Florida. Coming here, it's been a huge change. You know, the the climate, the season, I've been here since uh, the end of April. So it's beautiful here. I'm, I'm loving it so far. I've committed 
throughout the season until October. So we'll see how it goes and how it all plays out. What is it about Two Creek Farm that seems special to you? What are you learning? I really like the diversity about the farm itself. You know, we have a market garden, we have chickens, we have pigs, we have turkeys, we've got sheep, cows, pigs. So having all the animals together and the way that we work with the animals where we use a practice called rotational grazing where we're moving them throughout the land, uh, something that I'm learning as well. So a lot of things that uh, I was reading in books and uh, watching videos online, like on YouTube and such, uh, we're implementing here on the farm. So putting theory into practice and, and actually doing it in reality uh, has been um, very interesting. You got to go feed the chickens. It's fairly simple, right? You you know, you got to care for the animals. But I think that there's another layer to it where the nuances of the environment, you know, kind of responding to what you're doing. Like if you have the chickens, for example, in the pasture and then you move them four days later, you know, you have to kind of watch what happens. So a lot of it is kind of learning along the way. What does happen when you move chickens from one pasture to another? Yeah, so we call it disturbance. Same thing with the pigs as well. We keep the pigs in the forest. I don't know if you've walked up there yet, but it's it's really beautiful. Anyone that's local here listening, we would highly encourage you to come visit the farm. We give farm tours as well. But the disturbance, what we're trying to do is we're trying to turn forest into pasture and in order to do that, there are a lot of ferns and woody plants that grow in the forest. So when we send pigs through, for example, what they do is they trample down, they eat the weeds and the green. In doing so, it disturbs the soil so that annuals like grass is allowed to sprout. So give that a couple seasons and you start to have grass growing up in the forest and as well as, you know, you want to prune the trees as well, like trees that are, you know, falling down, dead or small trees. You can prune those leaves space for sunlight and then that allows grass to grow. And then the next season you can bring in cattle and sheep. So instead of having them graze out in the grass, you know, they can come graze in the forest as well. Same thing with the with the chickens. You know, they fertilize the grass. They disturb the soil in a good way. So it allows greener grass to grow out in the pasture. Regenerative farming mimics nature. Yes. What could you tell the audience why it's so important to know this knowledge that you're acquiring here on Two Creek? A very important question to ask yourself is where does your food come from? Mother Nature is sustainable inherently, but when humans express their dominion over the land, they do so for profit and not so much for the care of the earth. That was apprentice Hunter O'Connor from Two Creek Regenerative Farm located in Lakewood, Pennsylvania. More information is available online at twocreek.net.
Good morning. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. Last spring, Dr. Michael Kudish gave a lecture about his research on the botanical history of the Catskills based on samples taken from deep down in bogs around here. Lisa Lyons introduced Dr. Kudish. She commented on one of the many books about the Catskills and Adirondacks that he has written. You're the author of the Catskill Forestry a History, published in 2000 by Purple Mountain Press, fabulous local publishing house. It's, it's an absolutely wonderfully deep look at Catskill Forestry. What have we learned about the Catskills because of the bogs? What have I learned since I started doing the bog studies in 1995? That I would never have learned about the history of the Catskills had I not started the bog studies. I mean, it's just like an explosion, like a revelation since I've worked on these bogs. The bogs taught me so much in the early history before the last 300 years. He figures that he has studied about 30 bogs. If I have the two bogs, three bogs, six bogs that are over uh, 14,000 years old, the oldest one is an emerald. At the Mount Top Arboretum, I have six bogs in fence that are 14,000 years old. And there's very little tree and shrub vegetation for about the first thousand years, from 15,000 to 14. One of the bogs by Indian Head Mountain has spruce at 14,150, but we don't know if they're just scattered spruces or a forest bed. But what happens is that probably the Catskill, the vegetation looked like subarctic tundra. So roughly the first thousand years, from 15,000 to 14,000. Dr. Kudish rarely gets bog samples older than 15,000 years because that's when the ice retreated after the last ice age. Nothing grew under the ice so there is no peat from before that. He says that the region back then was like Arctic tundra with lots of little ponds. We had them here in the Catskills, about 200 of them at least. Where are they? Well, they became fens and bogs. This to me was quite a discovery. Look, we got Arctic tundra on the hilltops and in a protected ravine where the soils are deeper, and it's out of the wind, and there's more water. The balsam fir forest is coming in, in the protected spots. Did the Catskills look like this at one time? Yeah, when? Probably about 14,000 years ago. The Catskills are not like the Adirondacks. The Catskills, if you want to see what the Catskills looked like five, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand years ago, go to the Adirondacks today. And I figured out last November. It doesn't work. The Catskills are unique. Now, by 139, 14,000, 13,900, 13,700, Balsam Fur is here. Eastern Hemlock, Hemlock is here. That really took me by surprise. 139, 138, 13, 7, uh, 13, 7. Not only a little here, a little there, but everywhere from south to north throughout the whole region. Yellow birch is here by 13.9, and in abundance, probably more than half my bogs and fence have yellow birch. And the old ones go all the way back to almost 14,000. What that tells me, see, spruce and fir can grow in colder climates, but yellow birch and hemlock are not really 
northern Canadian species and more northern temperate species. So if I see a lot of yellow birch and a lot of hemlock in the Catskills at about 13.9, 13.8, 13.7, that tells me that the Catskills has warmed up after the Ice Age very rapidly, from 15,000 years coming out of the ice to 14,000 years when it was warm enough to support yellow birch and hemlock. I always thought and was taught that it took thousands of years for the Catskills to warm up. No. Yellow birch and hemlock were here 13.9 and in abundance throughout the whole region, from east to west, from north to south. Dr. Kudish describes one of the deep bogs that he has labeled number 380. He was looking for evidence of balsam fir and red spruce 13,000 years ago. This dates to about 13,100. So it's not the oldest, but if it's over 13,000, it gets all my respect. I'm really interested in the ones that are over 13,000. This is just over. What is really unusual about 380 is that it's a hemlock, yellow birch, shrub, fen, not a true bog. And I've taken how many samples of peat out of there from different places, different depths? Oh, at least six or eight or ten. Not a single balsam for a fossil in there. And you say, well, so what? Well, here's the reason why. This bog is only is at the base of Balsam Lake Mountain. Balsam Lake Mountain on the top is dominated by balsam fir trees. There's no fir whatsoever in here, and never was going back 13,000 years. And this is not unique. That whole East Branch Delaware Valley. I've got half a dozen bogs in the East Branch Delaware Valley. Roxbury, Margaretville, Arkville area, down to Downsville. No fir except the very, very few rare specimens, no spruce. Spruce and fir were never, or almost ever, in the Western Catskills. And I would have never known that. I would have never known that without the bog study. Because I assume we have, if you know your Catskills and you know your peaks, and you've hiked up on the summits, you know that the spruce and fir are generally in the eastern part, and all the mountains in the western part have no spruce, no fir, Drybrook Ridge, Millbrook Ridge, Platicle and Pisgah in Delaware County, Bear Pen, Fly, Utsiantha, Hockett, uh, Irish, more uh, Grand Gorge area. There's no spruce and no fir. Now, I assume, until I started working on the bogs, that the spruce and fir were there one time and it somehow disappeared. That's not true, because there's no, no evidence of them in the fossil record at all. They were never there. Now, that, that is the big puzzle I've been trying to solve. Something happened in the Poconos 14,000 years ago, and I don't know what, that prevented balsam fir and red spruce from migrating into the Delaware Basin. Still working on that. If you know, tell me. Okay. Lakes. What else can we learn about bugs? We know about when spruce and fir and hemlock and yellow birch came in, and when a lot of other trees came in from the fossils. What else? Dr. Kudish then described bogs in Ulster County, near the border of Sullivan County. Well, this is bog 359, and here's a pond, and a bog mat. This would be a true bog, because it has the, the heath mat. People say, oh, the Adirondacks have tons and tons of lakes, and the Catskills have no lakes. That's not true. The Catskills do have lakes, especially here in Sullivan County. We've got tons of lakes in this part, but not in the high peaks. 
Here he found fossil seeds of eulichium that are about 10,000 years old. What it is that eulichium is a plant that grows in shallow water, usually along the edges of ponds and streams. And it's in the fossil record, but there's no open water here where animals come down and drink and bathe and get out of them, the black flies. So this was a pond at one time, at least shallow water. Sometimes Dr. Kudish finds that the radiocarbon dating and the record shown by fossils of plants like leather leaf don't match up. 386, this is over by North Lake Campground. Actually, it's between the, the if you know your hotel history in the Catskills, it's between the site of the Hotel Cordeskill and the Catskill Mountain House. It's right along the escarpment on South Mountain. And 386 should be old enough to be 14,000, but it isn't. So this should be running about 14,000, but I'm getting a radiocarbon date of 11.5. So I think, ah, I made a mistake. Maybe it's contaminated. Try again, 11.5. Try again, 11.5, or thereabouts. So what is going on? This thing has lost 3,000 years of peak at the bottom. So why? You look at the fossil record, this is not the only bog that has no leather leaf today. The twigs are unique. So they're in here in the bottom. They're down about 9,000, 10,000 years. So this had leather leaf. Leather leaf is an open sun plant growing out in shallow water. This fan, 386, was once a pond with a Cami Daphne leather leaf mat. And no wonder it's only 11.5 because it was out in the sun and heating up from, from 15,000 to 11.5. And the first, what would that be? 3,500 years of peach just rotted away in the heat. The bottom, the heat transmits down. My, my, my hypothesis is working. The March 5th, 2022 hypothesis is working. Okay, what else can we learn? We, we learn that a lot of the, the bogs and fangs used to be ponds. We learn that a spruce fir, hemlock, and yellow birch were all here by 13.9. Looking at bands of charcoal in the peat samples, Dr. Kudish surmises that there must have been forest fires or that Native Americans were deliberately burning areas to grow crops. He can also deduce this by the presence of certain species that grew up after the burn. He calls these burn species. If you look closely at this, this peat has black bands in it. When you put it under the microscope, the black bands are mostly burnt wood, charcoal, and you have burned and unburned layers. What this means is a succession of forest fires. Here's a close-up. You can see this is a, a lot of this is charcoal, burnt wood. If you look closely, you see these succession of black layers of charcoal. This is right along the escarpment, just south of North Lake Campground. And that old escarpment burned for thousands of years. Initially by Native Americans and then more recently by people of European ancestry. And the fires are recorded, the charcoal. Okay, well, we have lots of fires in parts of the Catskills. Parts of the Catskills. Especially the eastern part above the Hudson Valley, but isolated other parts. Also the East Branch Delaware River Valley from, say, Grand Gorge down to Roxbury to Margaretville and down to Downsville and East Branch. That was another area of a lot of fires, but most of them were in the 
along the escarpment and the Ashokan Basin. This is 2009. It struck me that you can tell up to a point where the Native Americans were busy and active by the existing forest. See, archaeologists and anthropologists determined where the Native American peoples were busy by artifacts, human artifacts, uh, left over from campsites and hunting camps. But I don't know that anyone has looked at the existing vegetation and tried to determine where the Native Americans were. And I've learned that I think I can do that. So by looking at the assemblage of plants and trees growing on a site, whether Native Americans were busy there or not at all, or to what degree, and I came up with this uh, burn index, that is the number of plant species that indicate repeated history of forest fires. Also, there's very good correlation in these what I call hot spots with known sites of Native American villages, because you have all these burn species hanging around their, their village sites after a few hundred years. The Europeans came in and they farmed the place and kept the, the burn species going. The intense burn areas, the charcoal will tell us the dates, by the way. How long, how long the fires? Well, first you got to get the charcoal, then you add the logs, rate of carbon dates, and then if the rate of carbon date is way, way back, say nine or 10,000 years for the charcoal, and it's in a very remote place, like on top of Balsam Lake Mountain, it's probably a lightning fire. If it's along the escarpment or in the East Branch Delaware Valley, and it dates to four or five, 6,000 years old for the charcoal, it's probably Native Americans. But it's very hard to tell exactly which are Native American and which are like. You mentioned burn species that would indicate that it'll, uh, that are there now that would indicate. Yeah. What what are those? Okay, oaks, northern red oak, white oak, chestnut oak, bur, uh, uh, scrubber, or what's it? Barrow, corpus, American chestnut, hickories, which would be shagbark, pignut, and bitternut, shrubs like mountain laurel and uh, huckleberry and sweet fern and there's a small array of herbaceous plants but I usually go for oaks, hickories, chestnut, mountain laurel, sweet fern oh maple leaf I burn black birch but you have to be careful the reason is places like Kelly Hollow and there are, there are many other places in the Catskills have northern red oak and black birch and maple leaf viburnum, which is a burn index of three. And that, I don't think, is because of Native Americans. I think that's abandoned farmland from the Europeans. When you get up around four or five species, you get more than northern red oak and black birch and maple leaf viburnum. And you got more than those three. Then I think you're getting into Native American burning. So... Thanks to Emeritus Professor Michael Kudish, now you know that a great deal of ancient botanical history can be learned from bogs. If you have ideas for topics for future Now You Know segments, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country.
We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers, Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guests, Apprentice Hunter O'Connor from Two Creek Regenerative Farm in Northeast Pennsylvania and forest biologist Dr. Michael Kudish speaking to us about bogs in the Catskills. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to farming country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM, on your phone or smart speaker, or online at wjffradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org There's always a story behind the music, how the song was written, why the song was written. I'm Kathy Geary. Join me for Now and Then. Now and Then, Saturday afternoons at 3 on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Hi, this is Laura Flanders, and you can catch the Laura